Welcome to Closely Related, an advice podcast for all of your questions about relationships, careers, and life. I'm Hannah Strom. And I'm Samantha Strom, and we are actually identical twins. I'm a therapist, and I specialize in sex and relationships. And I'm a career and leadership coach. You've written in with your questions, and we're here to share our professional insights and tell you that we've been there too. All right, let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our third episode of Closely Related. Yes, welcome back. We're so pumped to have you again. You're all the best. I know. Feels like we're friends. Friends who we don't know. Friends who we hope exist. We're sure we would be friends with you if you're not our, already our friends. That's true. The, actually, the only people who are listening yeah. to this right now are our already friends. So, And we love you. Thank Hi, you Sus- for listening. Hi, Suzanne. Yeah. I love you so much. <laughs> okay so today we're gonna tackle two letters and they span the range of how to deal with trauma at different stages of your life all right let's do it okay so letter writer number one said would love to hear a convo about dating slash relationships while trying to work on self-healing How does one try to balance getting into a new relationship or dating around while you're also trying to focus on yourself? When is a good time to open up about trauma? It's like, you're not trying to hide it, but you can't go out guns blazing on the first or second date and whip out all your fucked up stuff because then it feels like you're dumping it on them. Plus, it's weird to open up if you aren't sure if they're interested in continuing anything. Who? Um, I thought first of all that the the image of going out guns blazing on first second date is so funny to me so real it's hilarious (laughs) and um while I was thinking about a response to this the the thing I came up with was that I think there's some people who tend to overshare and some people who tend to undershare so while you're thinking about your response I want you to think about whether you have the tendency to open up really quickly and tell everybody about your life and your trauma and your mental health issues, or whether it's really, really hard for you to be vulnerable and share with anybody. Some of the advice- I'm guns a-blazing. Yeah. I'm going in hot. Oh, I absolutely am a huge (laughs) overshare. Like, as I was reading this, I was like, wow, have I ever not- told somebody my entire life story on date one um i really have the tendency to open up about mental health stuff before i even go on a first date with someone let's be honest like oh we matched we're messaging and i'm just like by the way i have a really bad body image anxiety and I i did have this happen recently with a guy where he mentioned his diet and I am trying to work with people on this and do this myself of of not dieting and doing intuitive eating and kind of fighting the system so I think I was like oh no why are you doing whole 30 like look at this book (laughs) look at this book anti-diet that I bought like I'm reading this because I see an eating disorder therapist and like we were taught we were texting and 
this was in quarantine. So we actually had a Zoom date scheduled for that night. And he sent me a Zoom link. And so we had this conversation. And then two hours later, I tried to log into the Zoom link. And it was like, this Zoom link is inactive. And I, oh, that's cold. That <laughs> is cold. Just canceling the Zoom link. Not even saying anything. Oh, oh yeah, no. Like, I texted him and it was like, oh. he had an iPhone, but all of a sudden my my dot my messages were going from blue to green like all of a sudden he was no longer receiving my messages i don't know if i was blocked like i don't know what was happening i I called him pick up i looked on him to try to message him he'd unmatched me and like i literally i think at first was like okay he died um, <laughs> you know, like I'm gonna look in the news tomorrow. I'm gonna find oh him my God, no. in the newspaper. And I was like, just sitting and waiting. I'd like change into my nice shirt because you know it's Zoom. I put on makeup. It was like 8 p.m. No, it was like 9 p.m. This bitch made me wait till 9 p.m. And then after an hour, I finally realized that it wasn't a mistake, and he wasn't gonna log back on. So I just—he wasn't dead. <laughs> I just changed back into my pajama shirt, wiped my eye makeup off, and was like, "I guess I may have been a little bit too aggressive when I told <laughs> him that his diet was trash." <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> so, if you overshare, just know you're not alone. Um, You have me, you have Samantha, you have a lot of other people. And I think that oversharing, when uh, I go on first or second dates, or even when I'm meeting someone online and texting them before a date, I know I can have a real tendency to overshare that I think is related to my attachment style. So we talked about attachment styles a bit in episode one, and essentially quick refresh there's three kinds there's secure anxious and avoidant and i am more anxiously attached and that one of the manifestations of that is that you want to get into a relationship really quickly and so not everybody who's anxiously attached is an oversharer but it can happen that way and for me it it looked like i wanted to meet people right away. I wanted to get serious right away. And part of my path to doing that was just getting super deep really quick so that they'd be like, oh, we're bonded. And I also had a lot of insecurity and I basically wanted my partner to be this home for my insecurity. Like I just wanted uh, the love of my life who I could be like, I'm insecure. And they'd be like, no, you're beautiful. You're amazing. You're the best person in the world. And I, and then I would magically be healed. Right. And I wanted to get to that right away. So like date one, I wanted them to be like, oh my God, my mind's blown. Like she's heaven. And so I, I overshared, I think to get that closeness and that sense of probably false security really, really soon. Yeah, well, one thing is that you are amazing and people should know that from day one. And she's single, people, so, you know, just saying she's on the market. Um, No, I think that definitely makes sense. It's almost like it's this quick way to intimacy and that can feel really good. Um, I think I, I definitely lean towards the overshare as well. And I can say that it was definitely at its peak when I was in graduate school, because I went to a graduate school 
that essentially had a component that was like group therapy. It's kind of hard to explain, but essentially we sat around in a circle and just talked about what we were thinking about how we were being in this group. And so it was a lot of like giving each other feedback and saying how uncomfortable we felt or we felt hurt. And so that was a lot. Um, I was getting certified to be a coach. So you get coached, you coach other people. So that was a lot. I was getting certified in like Myers-Briggs or whatever. So I was always analyzing my behavior and other people's behavior. And then I also went to therapy for the first time and kind of started to unpack some of my own trauma. And so I was thinking about interpersonal behavior all the time. And it was pretty hard to turn it off. And I think I also kind of lost a sense of like, what do normal people say in conversations? I think when 90% of your conversations are really deep and intense, it can feel then really boring to have a conversation that's more small talk. And I remember my partner at the time, so we were hanging out on vacation with his family and he has older brothers and sisters-in-law and they have kids and I, I was asking, I think human development is really interesting. And so I was asking questions about like, you know, so what, what are the kids interested in? And like, how much do you think they know and understand? And I feel like I was just asking these really deep questions about a two-year-old. And he kind of called me out. He was like, you know, that's kind of weird, right? Like other people are not asking those type of questions. They're just asking what they like to eat. You know, you, you're going really deep all the time. And I was like, Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. So I can definitely relate to the overshare. Oh man. I definitely, I definitely still do that. I think being a therapist, (laughs) it's really hard to turn off deep talk mode. And one thing I find when I go on first dates after I've just had sessions all day is that I get so weirded out by the small talk. Like we're talking about sports. We're talking about our favorite AirPod situation. And I'm just like, do you want to tell me about your trauma or no? Like I'm here. I'm ready. This is, this is what I'm good at. So, I mean, if we want to talk about doing this thing or what? Yeah. If we want to talk about movies, okay. But I feel like you're avoiding something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which kind of leads us to the, to the other side, which is undersharing. Um, And again, undersharing and oversharing, they're both, pretty negative terms and we just made undersharing up but think about whether sharing comes really really easily to you or whether it's really hard and I definitely feel like I encounter people like that on dating apps because when they see that I'm a therapist they're they get scared um a question I get asked a lot is oh are you good at turning off your professional brain when you're dating and my answer is no um I they gotta leave it. <laughs> yeah, we'll be analyzing you, so enjoy. Um, but anyways, I was having this one conversation with a guy on Bumble about a month ago, and he had on his profile that he was into cooking, and I said, "Oh, cool. You know what? Have you been cooking?" And he told me about that, and then I said, "Do you have any other quarantine hobbies?" And you know, he said baking and gardening, and then he was like wow, you're really working your therapist magic on me. And and I was like, are cooking and gardening these big secrets? And he was like, well, I don't really open up about myself very much. 
And at that moment, I knew we were not compatible um, because if you think talking about cooking and gardening is too deep and personal, we're going to struggle, you and me, as a partnership. And yeah, so that's that's at one extreme end of, of maybe the undershare. But, you know, there's lots of people who feel really scared that if they open up, somebody's going to judge them. So Again, keep that in mind as you're listening, because I I really do think there's a balance. You know, this letter writer was like, what's the right amount of time? And I don't think we can say like, it's date five, it's two months. There's not one magic time when all of a sudden it's, it's not too soon, I don't think. Because one thing is that it really depends what your trauma is. And, you know, trauma is a word that I think can feel confusing for people. Like, does my stuff count as trauma? But maybe we can just think about it as something that feels raw or vulnerable or scary. So one thing that I I was thinking about is how often just things like that can come up in first dates or in second dates. Like, for example, if you are a recovering addict and you're meeting someone says, oh, let's get a drink, you might say, oh, I'm actually sober or I don't drink. And that's a pretty normal thing to come up right away before you even meet. I think when you bring up these topics, you want to be aware of the tone of how you're bringing it up and how much information you're giving right away. So a big thing is how much is this thing really raw and how much is it processed, which is pretty vague, like the word processed what does it even mean? But, um, I, you know, I think maybe tune into your gut about when somebody talks to you and it feels like they are really using you as a therapist or when they're just talking about something real that happened to them in their lives. I think, I think that's a really good advice, especially if you're testing the waters. You can talk about something intense if it feels like you've processed it enough or thought about it enough to where it's not so painful and if they don't say the right thing you're gonna feel really upset right so it's you're it's a little bit less risky to share something like that something that's helped me is i there's one assessment that i'm certified in called the eqi and it's about emotional intelligence and they basically have kind of what's emotional intelligence they break it down into 15 distinct skill sets And they talk, it's kind of on a spectrum of like how much you have the capacity to use that emotional skill. So like one's assertiveness and one's emotional awareness and one's emotional expression, which is probably the most similar to this. And they use the analogy of a faucet. So if you have a sink, you want to be able to twist it and have the full range of turning it on from a drip to a medium stream to full, right? And you want to be able to control that. You don't want a faucet that you turn on and it just sprays all over the place and you get all over your clothes, right? And you don't want a faucet that you turn and it's just like, doesn't really have enough pressure. It's just dripping. So that's, you basically want to have emotional skill sets in your pocket, ready to use when you want it or when you need it. And so if you overshare, it's a little bit like you turn on that faucet and it's just a spray everywhere. And I think with... If maybe it's your first or second date, you like that person, maybe you could try sharing one story or one thing, something that's maybe not your both your deepest, sharpest trauma. Once again, something that's a little bit more processed and see how they react. 
right? So if they seem totally freaked out or if they deflect or they are offended or defensive or whatever, then maybe you say, okay, time to turn it off because that's going to protect myself because talking to this person more is just going to hurt me and they're not the person for me. Maybe they could be a, you know, friendly acquaintance, but you know, the person that you want to be with is probably going to be able to handle some of that. And then if they do handle it well and they share, then maybe you could open it up a little bit more, tell another story, right? So it's thinking about it like going in terms of percents, right? Can you open up 10% versus going from zero to 100? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the last point you made that you want somebody who's going to not be defensive or, or not just ignore that, I think is very true, especially... If you tend to be an overshare like me, I know that I need to be with somebody who's okay with that, right? If they really defend or deflect, then it's not going to be a good match, right? I'm I'm not going to feel held emotionally. I'm not going to be able to have good conversations. So know that when you're kind of testing the waters, you're not really just testing yourself. You're also testing, is this a good match for me, right? And it doesn't have to be, oh my God, I shared, that's embarrassing, this was a failure. It's, hey, is this person gonna be good for me? And it's, in a way, good to know that kind of early. Yeah. I think if you're also on the undershare side, to know that there is a benefit to opening up because it can create that intimacy. And it can also be interesting, right? I think this might be a generalization, but I'll speak for myself, that I find people who have not a lot to say about not a lot can be a bit boring, right? Are people who have just had a, seem to have a perfect life and they have no problems and they don't really reflect on their weaknesses and strengths and interests and all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, well, we can sit here and talk about, you know, the office, you know, or, or I guess we can go home. I don't know. You know, it's like, what do you, there's, I think that to me, the parts that are interesting about friends and relationships are when they have thought deeply about themselves and the world. Definitely. I I feel the same. And that's kind of what I was saying when I was saying that, you know, I go on first dates and we're just talking about sports and again, we should have range, right? Like I should have the faucet of being able to have small talk more easily, but I want to be able to move from small talk to medium talk to big talk with somebody and just sticking to small talk all the time isn't necessarily going to make a great relationship and it's actually not even going to make that great of a first date. I did read this OkCupid data study, I think a while ago that talked about how people who open up more on first dates and talk about more risky topics like tell me about your last breakup, actually had more interesting dates than people who just kept it really close to the chest. Yeah, that makes sense to me. One thing that the letter writer said at the end was, how do you navigate opening up when you don't know if this person's going to stick around or if their relationship's just going to end? And I think that might be a question that's coming from this undershare perspective. Obviously, I don't know you, letter writer, but that's just my sense. And and I think I want to reframe thinking about you opening up and then that person leaves as maybe this loss or this failure. I don't know if you're thinking about it that way, but that's 
a way that you might be thinking about it. Um, if you tend to be an undershare, you can think about it as practice. Like, hey, I opened up to somebody, I made a connection, it didn't work out, but maybe it's going to be a little bit less scary to open up to somebody in the future. I also think that if you tend to undershare, try also sharing more with your friends or your family, people who you feel safe with, who you're going to have for a longer period of time, right? Not that all friendships last forever, but they're generally going to be more stable than somebody you're initially dating. So if you have more of a support system where you're like, this person knows my stuff, this person knows my stuff, then if you meet someone you share and they end up not working out after a few dates, it, it might not feel quite so devastating, at least in that particular way of like, I opened up to this person and then they're gone. And I also think it shows you that if you open up to a friend and they accept you and they stick around, hey, my stuff isn't that bad. It's not that shameful. It's not like it really scares people away. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think it's also one of those things where it's hard to know if you're going to stick around if you don't try to share, right? Because once again, if you're just small talk bantering for multiple dates and multiple dates, how are you going to know if there's somebody worth really having a deeper relationship with if you don't test the waters of some real stuff? Yeah, for sure. So I think we've done, taken a long time discussing the letter writer's last couple questions about when to open up about trauma, but I want to go back to their first question, which was overall, how do you balance healing and working on yourself while dating or getting into a new relationship? And I think this is tough because dating definitely can be be destabilizing uh, when you are working on your own mental health. So there can definitely be the roller coaster of, oh, this person's texting me and we're going on a date and we made out and it was so exciting. And then the drop of their ghosting or they said they weren't interested. And you can definitely have some high highs and some low lows. And I think if you're dealing with anxiety or depression or really, really any other mental health issue, it can be tough to date. And so I think, you know, one thing to think about is whether or not you feel like you're in the right place. Like, are, do you feel pretty stable? Do you feel like you have a support system? And that can include a therapist or a group or a psychiatrist or just a lot of good friends around? Or do you really feel like you've been in crisis pretty recently and it might be time to just focus on yourself? Yeah, I think there's a balance between want somewhat similar to what we talked about in the first episode of do you want to be perfect before you start dating? And that might not be the case at all for this person. Like they might have just come off something super raw and they really need time for themselves. Or it could be, you know, I'll I'll start dating someone when I don't have any anxiety or when I feel completely whole and have nothing left to work on. And that might be a recipe for waiting too long or just not at least trying to get started. So I don't know if we have enough info to, to suggest, you know, go one way or the other, but just something to consider. Definitely. I, I definitely think a lot of people who 
have a mental health issue feel like they have to get all their shit sorted before they can bring somebody else into their life. And I think that that can feel really isolating or alienated. Like I have to fix myself. I have to be well, quote unquote, before I can find a partner. And I think there are a lot of people out there who have healthy relationships or date in a healthy way who are struggling with some kind of mental health or in recovery from some mental health issue. You don't have to not have anxiety or not have sad thoughts to date at all, right? Like that is just false and the numbers don't support it. And yeah, I think you can work on self-love right now. And part of self-love can be, hey, I'm worthy of going on fun dates. I'm worthy of having good sex. I'm worthy of having a relationship. And sometimes the waiting can be, oh, I'm not worthy yet. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think relationships can be healing if you're with somebody who reinforces that you are worthy. I think that's really great. And at the same time, you don't want to go in hoping for somebody else to complete you. Like, I need this person to say I'm worthy, otherwise I don't feel worthy, because that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and I think you can also gather data from dating and starting new relationships. Like, how am I feeling when I date? How am I feeling when I meet someone new? How in track your own mental health with that? Because I know that I've dated at times when I was really not feeling super great and I still dated anyway. But now when I look back on it, I'm like, okay, I can see how much healthier I am now in my approach to dating compared to how I was a few years ago. And it, I didn't like have this period of abstinence or, you know, dating celibacy where I was like just focusing on myself like I was definitely still dating and just like absolutely losing my shit whenever somebody didn't text me back um and I still like semi lose my shit whenever someone doesn't text me back but I'm like a little bit better at dealing with it now um and so I can kind of track hey I I know that my mental health is a bit better now than it was because I can see this pattern that I want to get into but I don't completely fall into it I'm not like drowning in the pattern I'm able to like observe it and be like oh I feel really sad and worthless but I think that's probably not true maybe I should text my friend and like look at a meme yeah I think testing things out and gathering data is always a good solution especially if you're in a black and white like should I date people or should I not and if you're sitting at home not dating anybody, it's going to be kind of hard to know if you are ready unless you just put your toe into the water and see this feels good or this feels absolutely horrible. Um, so just maybe can you once again try 10% versus you don't have to go completely all in, but just see how it feels if you start. Totally. All right, I'm going to read the second letter. Something I've been ruminating over, particularly in COVID, is the transition from the fun, chaotic, and often traumatic life I led in my late teens slash early 20s to the fun, stable, and consistently pleasant life I now lead in my mid-20s. 
I love how things have become much simpler and happier for me in pretty much all aspects of my life. But sometimes I feel like I'm missing something or waiting for something big to happen. I can't tell if that feeling is a remnant of my past that's toxic and should be ignored, or if it's my gut telling me to shake things up and I should listen. Yeah, I think this is a really good question. My first instinct is that sometimes when people are used to a traumatic situation, maybe with their family or maybe with traumatic relationships, I I don't know what this letter writer is referencing, but they're used to working really hard and chasing really hard to get something they don't have, like to get a sense of safety and to get a sense of stability. So they might be really hypervigilant. Think about Again, we don't know if this letter writer is single or in a relationship, but think about somebody who has been in relationship with people who are unavailable for a really long time. They essentially chase and chase and chase. And then if they finally find a person who is available, all of a sudden they're stable and they're not chasing. And what can happen in that scenario is they feel a sense of boredom. So it's possible, letter writer, that Now that you've achieved this stability, maybe in your work life or your home life, you are feeling that boredom because it's so unfamiliar. That all makes a ton of sense. Question for you. Does this relate to attachment at all, right? If you've gone, if you're maybe on one of the ends of not being securely attached and then you go to secure, is that something that can feel boring? Yeah, definitely. You know, imagine if you are in a relationship where you're like chasing someone and they're unavailable and, you know, you're like sending you up texts and they're not, (laughs) you know, they're like responding some of the time or whatever. And then all of a sudden you get somebody who is like texting you every day and they're like, good morning, good night. I'm like going to respond whenever I'm always going to hang out with you. There can be a little bit of like, the fuck? Like, um you're actually here like all the time you're you're available all the time like it's it can feel confusing and can feel just so unfamiliar that there can definitely be an element of boredom there and almost like oh I didn't have to I didn't have to work so hard to win your affection so do is your affection even worth something yeah it's like the drama itself is interesting and stimulating Yes, definitely. And it it brings us to a good question the letter writer asked, which is, is this my gut that's telling me maybe I need a change? Or is this a remnant of my trauma? And I think one thing you could do is journal or meditate and try to get in touch with your inner wisdom voice. And, you know, that could look like an old version of you or like a mentor and almost try to ask hey, what does it feel like when I lean into a sense of safety? Because for some people, it feels actually scary. It feels scary to be safe. It feels scary to be vulnerable because it feels like, when is the bad thing going to happen? Like, I don't, almost like this underlying, I I don't deserve to be happy. So when is the rug going to be pulled out from under me? Hmm. So there might be that is like this underlying little fear. And then, you know, another option is maybe something actually is boring, right? Like maybe you don't like some aspect of your life and you do want to change it. So we don't know that, but 
going deep could maybe help you get to whether it's um, maybe this voice of fear or whether it's um, a bit more rational. Yeah, I think that trauma or no trauma, I think that what this letter writer is feeling is also something that a lot of people in their mid-20s feel. And this is, in particular, if you led a life of with some financial privilege, which you and I did, where, so it's, might not might not be the life pattern for a lot of people, so acknowledging that, but for us, I know we were in situations growing up where in high school and then we went to college, we were A, in a community with a lot of people, right? When you are with people every day or live with somebody all the time, you know, in a dorm, there's a lot of fun things going on and you're hanging out with people and there's lots of things going on. And potentially you're also the client of a school, right? Especially in college, you're probably paying for this school that part of their job is to entertain you and to do fun things for you. So they're putting on dances and there's plays and there's extracurricular activities you can do. And there's life's kind of designed for you to be learning and potentially having fun. Yeah, I think you're definitely given more stimulation in that extracurricular way. And there's more people, right? If you went to high school, if you went to college, then you're used to people being all around. And then once you get out into the working world, you're either living by yourself or with roommates or with a partner. And there's just not as much interpersonal interaction. And I do think having lots of people around can be exciting, right? You're figuring out, hey, what happened to you? And having all these different interactions all the time. And then you graduate from that and go to living in your little box with your phone, your tiny box. And you're just like, oh, wow, why am I bored all the time? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that so many movies and TV shows and books center around high school in particular and college as well. I mean, there's a lot of dramatic, interesting things that happen, right? People are getting in their first relationships and there's drama and, you know, maybe they're getting their first jobs or they're fighting with their parents or whatever, right? There's a lot going on. And compared to someone who is privileged and lucky enough to maybe be in their mid-20s, let's say they have something like a nine to five job and they have their own home or apartment, uh, a lot less stimulation, right? You're going to work, you're working. There's probably a lot less variety, even, even jobs that are really interesting and have a lot of variety. There's probably still less than school where you had multiple classes and extracurriculars and a bunch of people all around. Right. And then you go home and Maybe you have like a hobby or two, but maybe you just watch Netflix, like maybe you go to the gym, you know, really switch it up. And that's, for a lot of people, that's a pretty boring life. And I, I do think that a lot of the people that I coach, you know, my part of my business is called Quarter Life Crisis. And I think because they do maybe get to this mid-20s point and they go, oh, is this all there is? Like, am I meant to be doing something more with their lives? And I, I think that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think one people are told at least once again, this is, I know we were told, and this once again comes with a decent amount of privilege, but that we could follow our passions and follow our dreams. And that was what our life was supposed to be. And that seems so exciting. And I think for a lot of people, the reality of a job often doesn't match with that idealism as much, right? Because at the end of the day, you're working for someone and you need a paycheck. So you're probably going to need to do some things that don't feel like 
the passion that you want to be doing 100% of the time, right? Or maybe there's some organizational challenges, or you don't like your manager, or whatever. You're overworked. Something that makes work a bit frustrating. And I know a lot of people are like, kind of in a rut, or at least I'm good, but I'm not great. And what do I do? And I think then people are kind of unsure whether they need to quit their job, go hike the Appalachian Trail, or go live on a commune in Alaska or something, or eat, pray, love style, travel around the world, or whether they just need to like pick up knitting. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think a lot of people, when they get into the working world and they're working for the man, right, feel a lot of apathy and it is hard to know what to do. You know, do you blow up your whole life or do you... <laughs> well said, well said. <laughs> or do you need to go to a sewing class? Like, it's, it's tough, you know? I think uh, we've all done both. We've all done both. <laughs> Have we? <laughs> blow up your life. I think too, like, I mean, on the blowing up your life part, I think if you get to your mid-20s, at least I know for me, like, I had gotten a fairly stable relationship by that point. And then, and some people, you know, they buy a dog, maybe not buy, get a dog. They're not commodities. (laughs) (laughs) My bad. Or, you know, maybe they bought a house. And there's more ties and anchors to one place and it can feel harder and harder to leave. And sometimes that can feel more like this ball and chain keeping you down. <laughs> right. You know, what? some people love their dogs and some people think of their dogs as ball and chain. <laughs> I'm like so many dog lovers are going to throw some shade at this podcast. I love dogs. I'm just allergic to them. It's fine. Um, But, you know, in college, I remember, like, I studied abroad and I packed one suitcase. How did I do that for six months? You know, it's like now, like, my walk-in closet that I am recording from right now is full of all of my stuff. And I think, it, yeah, some of the stability can come at that price of freedom. And that's in a relationship and just in life as well. It's true. I mean, even as you get older, I feel like your body just gets more picky. Like, I feel like for me, when I was younger, I would, you know, sleep over at friends' houses and and I would kind of be unhappy because I had cats and I'd be allergic. But now I'm like, listen, I have my specialty eye cream and I need to sleep in my bed from 10 to 6 and then I need to take my acid reflux medication at 6 and set another (laughs) alarm for 7 before I can eat. So I cannot sleep over because I have my things, um, including my mouth guard and my eye mask, um, you know, which are all and my chapstick and my water bottle, which are all an important part of my sleep accessories. Uh, so I'm not very spontaneous because I need my accoutrements. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I think sometimes like the more responsibility you get at a job, the more it feels like that. You know, I remember you, know, you go to a sleepover and you sleep on your friend's floor on maybe like a tiny little thermarest or something. And then you'd go to sleep from like 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then walk back hazily to your home or have your mom pick you up or whatever. And then 
I don't even know what I did for the rest of the day, but I'm sure it wasn't productive, right? And now it kind of can feel, especially if you are in that nine to five, it's like, if you do something like that Friday, then you have to sleep all Saturday, and then you have to do all your chores Sunday, and then you start the whole thing over, and it's like, your window for freedom and risk can start to shrink and feel smaller and smaller. Yeah. So I feel like as we're talking about like the sadness of the American lifestyle, I do want to say that you can find, <laughs> you can find joy in your life. Yeah. Right? We don't all we're fine. fine. <laughs> nobody, nobody needs to send help. We're okay. <laughs> Um, take up knitting as we've previously said <laughs> right okay what are you doing in your life that feels like an adventure especially in covid that is really hard but i do know people who've been like okay i'm gonna learn a new language i'm gonna learn an instrument and we started a podcast right that feels pretty new and exciting so is there something you can do that would feel like pushing yourself that would feel like fun, right? Not like work pushing yourself, not like another grind, but what would feel like fun? Yeah, I think overall the question to ask yourself, or maybe twofold, one is like, oh man, Marie Kondo, but what sparks joy, okay? Like what what are the things and times that really make you happy? And I know for me, when I've thought about that, I really like sports and I really like games. And so... I thought like, okay, I, I, sign, I signed up for a sport league, sports leagues and that's great. But I also was like, what else could I do to make this happen? And I really like spike ball. It's a super fun game. And so I like made a spike ball tournament with my friends, right? So it could be something simple like that. Um, the other thing you could maybe ask is like, what are the things I want to do in my life? You know, this bucket list basically. And so... Maybe it's travel somewhere, go to all 50 states or, you know, parachute out of a plane or whatever. And I think you do have to put in whatever, either of those questions, it kind of does come down to effort to make that happen. And it's not going to happen to you, right? Sitting around and waiting for something big to happen is probably going to be a strategy for failure. So what, what do you want to happen and how are you going to go make it happen? And I do want to validate that not everybody can just quit their job and travel for a year, right? I think sometimes people do feel like they need to do something big. It's bigger, it's nothing. Like, unless I quit my job right now and go hike for six months, everything's boring. And maybe you do want to do that. Like, maybe if that's really your dream, like, make it happen, right? How are you going to make that plan so it's not just a dream and it comes to life? Awesome. Or maybe it is like, yeah, but you do have a house or you have your lovely dog, which you love so much and <laughs> you want to do that. And so, yeah, what are the things that you can initiate either for yourself or with you and your friends or you and your partner, or your family to get get more things that really bring you that life fulfilling joy in your life? Yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, because 
for definitely a lot of people, it's about money. And then I also think one other thing about these big things is that they might only be for a certain amount of time. So planning a vacation that's one week in the summer is definitely very different than doing something new that you could do every day or every week. So think about, do I want to put my planning energy and money into something that's a one-time experience? Or do I want to have something that I could do at the end of the day on Thursday when I'm feeling kind of low or bored? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's what me and my partner thought about when we were trying to figure out where we wanted to move after graduate school. And we kind of said, what are the things that we like to do on our vacation or that we like to do in our life that we want more of and more access to? And pretty much all of our vacations was going into nature, going to the mountains. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool if that was something we could just do on the regular versus waiting for those 10 vacation days a year? And we also thought we like when it's a little bit warmer because then we can maybe enjoy hiking or going outside more, playing Ultimate Frisbee more, which is one of the sports we like to do where we met, actually. Um, And then and it had to be in the U.S. because he's a lawyer and you can't always just work outside the U.S. as a lawyer. Bummer. So anyways, we pretty much were like, okay, mountains, warm ish America ding, 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 Denver, right? That was like the city that fit all that criteria. And it has absolutely made an impact in our lives to do that. I am definitely much happier in Denver than I was when I lived in DC and Philly, which is where I lived after college before this. And yeah, I mean, the the plan kind of worked. So the other thing we thought about too is like we wanted other people who liked those same things and Denver's full of people who moved here for the exact same reasons we did. And so then there's also a lot of people who are ready and willing to do the activities that we like. So I do think choosing a city based on your interests or a place to live based on your interests is a good way to go if you can afford to do that. Right. And I think that's really good for if you're thinking about moving, but if you're already tied to your city how could you explore a new part of your city, maybe a new community, a new activity? What I did when I was around 25, and this, obviously this was pre-COVID, was I j- started doing improv and stand-up. And that really felt like a completely new part of my life. It, it was a new community. I was seeing these people maybe two times a week. And it felt very vibrant. Like it was people were on stage. People were making jokes, people were interacting in these ways that they didn't normally do. I, I did kind of feel like it It transported me back to high school a little bit where people were making things together in a way that wasn't super normal in my everyday life. And I was really challenging myself. I was pushing myself to talk about things I didn't normally talk about and be on stage. And then I was having these events that I was getting this feedback from the audience. And that really felt super invigorating. And not everybody likes doing improv. Not everybody likes getting up on stage. But is there something you could do that would feel invigorating? And if you're an extrovert, is there a way that you could do that thing with other people? Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And one of the things you can ask yourself if you're trying to figure out like, what do I like genuinely? That's not just working or being productive or watching movies or whatever. And those are all great things. 
like what do I actually like a question you can ask yourself is what did I like doing as a kid because I know you and I really liked being in plays and performing and that's something that once again the opportunities were just there in school and then they weren't and you had to actively make it happen like I'm gonna sign up for this improv class and I know I did a little bit of that as well. And yeah, I got that same feeling of performance and I kind of feel it on this podcast too, a little bit of like, it's fun to make something and to present it. And so like, what was the thing, what did you do and what did you like about it? And so what other things have that element in it as well? Yeah. (sighs) But you know, if you want to blow up your life, you can <laughs> do it. Just leave your job behind and just get on the road. That's so sad. Don't do that. Oh my god. Sorry. It's too much. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dogs are great. Homes are great. Uh, All right. Geez. Well, I think that on that note, uh, we can wrap up our our podcast on trauma and you know, which stage of life you're in. And yes. Thanks for writing in everyone and trusting us with your questions and stories. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Hope to, hope to see you again next time. All right. See you all soon. so much for listening yeah and thank you for sharing your stories and if you want if you have a story and you want to write in please do you can write in at closely related podcast at gmail.com that is closely related podcast at gmail.com and are you sitting there thinking should i write in i don't know like maybe they haven't too many people write in already or maybe my thing isn't cool enough yes you write in now we want you also it's completely anonymous Uh, But please put in email your pronouns so we know how to refer to you. And also, if you're listening, please subscribe, rate the podcast, or write a review on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps. It does. Um, To learn more about the show, you can check us out at closelyrelatedpodcast.com. Or if you want to learn more about coaching with me, you can go to quartercrisis.com. And if you want to learn about my work as a therapist, you can go to hannahstromcounseling.com. As a reminder, this show does not constitute therapy or coaching. So if you need that, please reach out to a coach or therapist in your area as soon as possible. Yeah. And this podcast is a product of Pascal Strom Consulting LLC. Thanks again for listening. 